Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity, and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda, and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you, and hopefully not challenge your attention span. On the 14th of May, 2022, less than a week after recording this episode, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron killed 10 people and injured another three inside a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. 11 of the 13 victims either killed or injured were black. He broadcast the whole attack on the live streaming service Twitch, sensationalizing his cold-blooded act and sending shockwaves across the country. By all accounts, this was a calculated plan. Before beginning his racist rampage in the city's predominantly black community, Gendron posted a 180-page document online fixated on the idea that white people were being intentionally replaced by other races. This is no lone gunman operating on the fringes of society. He is only one of many recent violent and abhorrent examples of racially motivated attacks in the United States. In 2018, a white man gunned down 11 worshippers at a Pittsburgh synagogue, and in the following year, another white supremacist killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso over his anger for the apparent Hispanic invasion of Texas. These three shooters and their three different target groups are all linked by one ever-evolving and mutating conspiracy, now commonly referred to as the Great Replacement Theory. Based on the idea that Western elites are orchestrating the replacement of white people by bringing non-whites into the country, this theory has become an engine of racist terror, helping inspire one mass shooting to the next. Once a fringe idea relegated to the digital dumpster of Reddit and 4chan, the Great Replacement Theory has now gained political currency on popular right-wing platforms and in the halls of Congress. Versions of it have been packaged and embraced by an alarming number of right-wing politicians and media personalities in order to attract audiences, endorsements, and political clout. In its wake, we have been left with a potent and disturbing culture war that has turned white nationalism into an international call to arms. Peyton Gendron is only the latest example of a long line of violent white nationalists 
that span across the globe. From Christchurch, New Zealand, to Charleston, South Carolina, the promotion of this replacement theory rhetoric has normalized hate and emboldened white terrorists. On today's episode of Media Minded, we speak to Nigel Bromwich, an ex-far-right member who spent decades in various extremist organizations, including the National Front, the British Movement, and Combat 18, which in 2019 the Canadian government listed as a terrorist organization. For our listeners across the Atlantic, these far-right groups are notoriously fascist and hold links to neo-Nazi organizations across the world. Nigel takes us back through his life, from the moment he joins the National Front, to the moment he turns his back and walks away from the alt-right, for good. Also joining us today is Professor Michael Fiola, an Associate Professor of Government and Law, who is speaking to us on the origins of the Great Replacement Theory and how it has mutated into its current form. So I'm joined now by Nigel Bromwich. Uh, hello, Nigel. Oh, yeah. How are you today? I am not too bad. Not too bad. Um, so when did you first make contact with uh, the far right? Um, my very first sort of contact with the far right was at a really young age of 15. Uh, and I was simply recruited outside my school gates. Um, the far right were there giving out leaflets. Uh, and, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I ever did was simply take a leaflet off the gent who was handing out the information. And what was the what was the process like? What was the grooming process like? Um, it was really slow, if I'm honest, at the beginning. And it was very sort of um, arranged, mate, trying to make you feel comfortable. Um, so they gave me a really simple message, you know, stand against extremism, try and stop, you know, the IRA um, promoting hatred and terrorism and, you know, stand up and do something about it because obviously it was wrong at the time mm -hmm. um, and through that initial process then people then try and sort of find out a little bit around your own story and then that's then when the individual tailoring of the like the recruitment or grooming process as I prefer to call it starts it's very much about finding either a what the need is is happening in your life you know is there something missing or is there something that you're passionate about or interested in? Um, and then the far right hook into that and then build that recruitment process around it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what was, um, if I may ask, what was the emotional hook uh, in, in that leaflet and in those initial conversations for you? you? You mentioned the IRA, was it? Yeah, I mean, the leaflet was really strong. It had a bold headline and it had hang out the IRA scum. Um, so that catches your attention straight away. Um, but I think for me, it was the emotive um, sort of story on the back of the leaflet. And it was a story about a young mum who, who walked into a, an IRA bomb explosion and then never went back to her husband and children. And, you know, the sort of call to action was, you know, if you uh, feel strong about this and you feel this is wrong, do something about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I took the bait, if I'm honest, and I thought, yeah, you know, I want to stop this happening to any other family. Mm -hmm. I mean, who, who who wouldn't take that kind of bait, right? Because it's obviously, I mean, context is key, right? Especially at the time of what we're talking about, you know, you had, I'm guessing the IRA hitting headlines quite regularly. So there was this, 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 um, it was a known problem um, at the time. Um, how did you feel when you realized that that 
it wasn't just that you you realized that you joined the national front at, uh, at that point how, how did that feel really really sort of shocked at the time you know i was brought up in a strong left-wing um sort of household mom and dad were socialists and trade unionists um so i had quite a political upbringing um, so, you know, I didn't have a great love in any way, shape or form of the far right, because obviously what my parents had told me about what they stood for. Um, but then realising after around six months that actually this group, you know, called Birmingham against the IRA was actually a front for the National Front. Um, I challenged the person who recruited me in, um, you know, so I didn't know it was the National Front. But then he was really good at sort of persuading me to sort of, you know, take the emotion out of the time of obviously my reaction. And then he, he just simply offered just, you know, a large amount of counter narratives to what I thought with the far right was, you know, they spoke about being proud to be British, you know, being anti-RI, anti-terrorist. And he said, while a few people were racist within the organisation, they were trying to get rid of them. And then it was all about being sort of, you know, trying to do the right thing for British people. Um, and, you know, as a young 15-year-old, I simply took it on board. And, you know, then I said, well, I'm going to give you six months. If I don't like what I see, then I'm going to leave. But that extra six months was a really big mistake because then they really tailored the message and honed into my own personal situation. And then I, ju I just succumbed to that message of hate, sadly. Mm -hmm. And when you say they, they really honed in on that message... Um, in those six months, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that because I was actually going to ask it because you know a normal fifteen-year-old isn't going to be massively into politics necessarily. Um, although you know that is a bit of a myth. I think young young people do care about politics. It's just a question of how what we think of politics as and, and how we frame it, of course, right? Because I mean, you see nowadays, obviously, the marches around climate change, mental health, etc. Um, so young people are interested. It's just a matter of how you how you frame it, and it's interesting that that. As you talk about, you know, the far right know this and frame it in in a way of issues that that you care about, emotional issues that you that you're probably going to care about. Um, but obviously, finding out about them and obviously having a uh, dare I say it, left wing uh, political upbringing, um, how did that kind of grooming process develop during those six months? How did they tailor the message specifically to you? I mean, you know, young people are always cared about, obviously, society and sort of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and, you know, you know, nobody should ever try and stifle that because that's how, obviously, change happens for the positive. Of course. Um, in my own case, um, they found out that, sadly, my mum had got cancer and, and the message that they gave me at the time was if they got into power, then what they would do then is ban all foreign aid and then invest all that money into the NHS so, you know, I took it as a lifeline and I definitely wouldn't have cared which political party would have given me that lifeline. I would obviously, you know, your mum's dying of cancer, I would have literally grasped anything really. Um, but it was such a powerful message. And, you know, the fact that they then started doing, you know, things around the home, you know, helping mum get to hospital appointments, you know, teaching me how to pay the gas bill, the electric bill. Um, you know, dad was around, but sadly, dad uh, was an HDV driver, so he was away for like four days a week. And that gap then was the ultimate moment where the far rock could step in and sort of give me that support that I needed from, you know, non-extremist people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's almost like the um, the idea of how, um, you know, gangs in estates recruit young people where you're, you're almost replacing... Um, a certain aspect of 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 kind of home life that may 
may or may not exist, right? Or, you know, an absent parent or, or an absent brother or whatever, and kind of feeling that kind of camaraderie almost. Um, yeah, very much so. It always tends to be about like trying to offer you an alternative family or offer you an, an additional support network. And, you know, and, and where I lived at the time, it was a council estate. It was a little bit, shall we say, rough and ready. Um, so getting involved in an organisation like that, you know what I mean? There was different mm-hmm. groups with regard to sort of people who operated on the estate. And that was an additional then support mechanism of then if you did get into trouble, then obviously there was a group of people of like mind who then would obviously then sort of defend you and sort of protect you, um, you know, against sort of the things that were going on at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It almost sounds like, at least at the beginning, the kind of racial narratives that the far right are known for almost came secondary in the grooming process. Yeah, definitely. And this is the worrying thing. They were so clever about the message that they um, sort of sold me because um, they were really aware that I came from a left-wing household. So one of the things they spoke about was the fact that the National Front had a trade unionist group. And, you know, at the time they were trying to reject things like the youth, uh, the YTS scheme, which was being, um, young people were being sort of, you know, we felt at the time forced to go in onto what we thought was forced labour and getting a, a, you know, a short sort of pittance of a wage. And obviously from a socialist background, I was against it, but also the National Front were then using that then to recruit white working class youth to sort of say reject that, be anti-establishment, and then sort of once that was done, then the racism and the sort of extremism was developed on on sort of general issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, of course. Um, and it is, you know, it is such a powerful um, angle to to use. Um, and obviously you didn't you didn't stop with the National Front. Um, what other far extremist groups did you then move towards or move into? And was there a specific trigger as to why you ended up moving to to other more more specific groups? Yeah, well, definitely got more and more angry as sort of the older I got. Um, sadly, mom died at 18 of cancer and that made me really angry. Um, and the far right gave me somewhere to release the anger. Um, in the national front, I got a little bit bored, if I'm honest. I didn't quite like the idea of fighting elections, trying to, you know, wear a suit, look respectable. You know, I was a young 18-year-old who was into, like, punk and skinhead music, and the last thing I wanted to do was stick a suit on. Um, so I then looked for alternatives, um, and there was other organisations. So on the estate where I lived as well, there was a strong British movement branch, and I then simply opened the door then to see what this organisation was like and, and it was very welcoming you know they had weekly meetings in somebody's home um you know there was home brew flowing there was um things like you know movies being played music in a different room and again it was very much about grooming young people on the estate to go on a wednesday night stay you know in this um person's house who was around 45 so he very much sort of knew what he was doing wow. it was a whole grooming process and depending on what your interest was, was then what that sort of developed. Uh, and again, through that process, I became the youth organiser and eventually moved on to be the West Midlands organiser. So it was very much a training programme that they put me through. Mm-hmm. Um, I became frustrated with that and I moved on to other groups. Um, I joined uh, a group called the NSPUK, which was like a British Nazi party. Um, I joined um, Combat 18 and, you know, embrace what they stood for about direct action and violence and at the very end even embraced the church 
which was based in America, but advocated something called Rahoa. And Rahoa stood for racial holy war. So I went from somebody being completely anti-extremist and against violence to then through frustration and anger, um, embracing direct action as the only way forward. Talking about Combat 18, because they are um, arguably one of the more, I mean, aside from obviously the National Front, that was a, a very heavy political organisation. Combat 18 was a bit more, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but direct action. And I know some countries across the world um, put them on, on on terror watch lists. Um, how was um, that different to do something like the National Front? Um, it was very different. I mean, you know, straight away we uh, openly identified as National Socialist or Nazi. You know, for years I've been called a racist. Self, self-identified as. Yeah, you, you sort of, you stood up and, and one of the things, you say, yeah, I believe in Adolf Hitler was right. I'm a National Socialist. Um, some people didn't like being called a Nazi. If I'm honest, I, I didn't care whether somebody called me a Nazi or a National Socialist. Um, but it was all about saying, well, we're never going to win power through the elections and, you know, the ballot box. So what are we going to do? And as, and as alternatives, we promoted a direct action. Um, so it was all about sort of you know, physical intimidation, attacks on people, communities, etc. which when I look back, you know, I'm literally full of remorse for. But at the time, it was, it felt like it was a war on the streets of Birmingham and Britain. And, and you, you had to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also as well trying to build um, communities. So it was very much about taking over predominantly white working class estates. And if there were any left wingers on the estate or maybe ethnic minorities, then I, I'm, I'm really sorry to say that then we would form, you know, and sort of get involved in intimidation of those individuals and families. Um, and it was just part course of being involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, of course. And, it's interesting because obviously you when 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 the grooming process started it was all about the the IRA and um you know stopping the 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 bombings and getting involved in that kind of thing which obviously had absolutely nothing to do with with uh racial holy war or or anything to do with ethnic minorities really um in the concept that that we understand it right so when did that process for you change when it did it stop becoming about um you know the IRA and, and then the initial th- reasons why you started to get involved in these groups and when did it start to become about um you know the 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 race war as you as you saw at the time and you know Adolf Hitler's kind of Aryan supremacy narrative and when did that become a thing the racial aspect of it has definitely came in within the national front mm. um towards the end and it was all about then being you know um I got I was um I was a punk and skinhead at the time, and we formed like a, a what they call a rock against communism band, um, and we then got on, involved in uh, what the uh, National Front had a, a record label called White Noise, and then we managed to get onto there, and, and we literally were one of the, the worst racist bands that Rock Against Communism had, and we did that intentionally, um, but embracing that racism was done by that sort of slow feed. But then I realised electrical politics was never going to achieve this uh, aim mm-hmm. of what I believed in at the time of a white Britain. We then decided then we had to look for alternatives. And then that's when you then reject all electoral po- politics, go, right, I'm going to be a national socialist. And then to achieve power, it has to be through direct action. So it probably took around 
I would say three years for me to openly call myself a racist and, you know, say, okay, you know, I am a racist. I do believe in, you know, mm -hmm. a white only Britain. And as terrifying as that sounds now, at the time, you know, it wasn't just me, but there was 30 or 40 of us on one estate who all felt the same. Mm -hmm. So if you lived on that area, it must have been absolutely horrific. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. And um, it's interesting because it's, it almost sounds like you you already had those beliefs when you joined Combat 18. It wasn't like Combat 18 um, radicalized, maybe radicalized you further, possibly. But you seem like that those kind of seeds were planted at the National Front. Yeah, the seeds were definitely planted within the National Front. Mm -hmm. And then I think when I then moved to the British movement, they were literally reinforced. And then that's then when I openly identified as a, as a Nazi or National Socialist. Yeah, And I think that's then when... We started talking to lots of people in America and they were speaking about things like leaderless resistance, you know, about how, you know, a small group of individuals can try and take the fight to the state. Mm -hmm. And I think that's then when we decided we were moving more to seeing the state, politicians, police officers, social workers as the, as the real enemy and people who were from different ethnic groups. They literally became secondary because my argument then was, you know, these individuals have the same amount of power as we do. You know, they go to the same schools, they go to the same local areas, the shops. So why are we fighting each other when actually the enemy is the state who then I believed was mistreating not only the white population, but also, you know, other ethnic minorities. Um, and there was even occasions when we met people from different ethnic minorities to try and promote that sort of viewpoint. And some took it on board and obviously some rejected it. As in you as, as part of the far right, you'd meet with other, other groups from other ethnic minorities, from other yeah, ethnic we, groups or other? Yeah, we met with people from, you know, different communities and we were trying to advocate that Britain should be cut up into different nations. So there could be you know, a black nation, an Asian nation. And then you know, if people wanted to live in a multicultural society, then they were more than welcome to do that. But actually, we wanted to be left alone in, in what we would class as like a white homeland. And we thought that then would reduce violence and intimidation. But obviously, in the reality, that was never going to happen. This idea of creating an ethnostate, or as Nigel put it, a white homeland, has found currency in recent years, with anti-immigration sentiments sweeping across the shores of Calais in France to the screens of millions of Americans as they tuck in to watch Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News. While many of us are becoming aware of the Great Replacement Theory, it is by no means new. It is rooted in the exact same concept that once made interracial marriage illegal and spawned the Jim Crow laws in the United States. At its foundation, it is about the preservation of white power and at its extreme, it is about how far individuals will go to protect their position, or shall I say, whiteness, in society. Let's talk about this, this uh, Rahoa you mentioned, the, the racial holy war, because that sounds like it, it's a bit more, um, not quite as, as uh, potentially collaborative, although I use that word incredibly loosely. <laughs> um, 
what I mean, how was that different? Like, how was the the, the racial uh, the the kind of racial religion aspect that you joined? How was that different from the kind of more political, more straight up political organisations like like Combat Eighteen or the National Front? I mean, initially, it was actually being promoted by members of the British National Party, and the argument okay. was that you could actually have a political ideology, whether it was nationalist or national socialist. Um, but then embracing a religion was much more important because once you embrace a religion, you, you tended to do that for a long time or life was the aim. And they also said you could still be political in a political group, but the religion then you could be your sort of church where you could then sort of look at homeschooling children. Um, and then you did lots of things around building community, you know, promoting the fact that, you know, um, ladies should look to have sort of, you know, four babies minimum, that whole traditional sort of family life, but also as when the reality was that the only way we were going to get to that stage was to sort of, you know, take direct action against people. And, and then it moved on to people like um, who worked in the media, who we thought we were promoting an image, uh, whereas it was all about multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. So I sort of, I went a community route and tried to develop this alternative, which didn't quite pan out. And then sort of sadly through even more frustration and anger, I think uh, promoting that racial religion, and because it was based in America, there was no holds barred with regard to what it said in their newspapers. Um, and, you know, they even had a book called The White Man's Bible. The White Man's Bible? Yeah, and it literally <laughs> told you what you should be doing, how you should be living your life. You know, it t- talks about the extermination of people. It, it mocked other religions. So it was quite... And we mocked Christianity as well as Islam and other religions. And it was literally just about saying, you have to draw a line in the sand now. And if you don't join us, then, you know, you're part of the enemy. What would you say is the underpinning ideology um, or the kind of fear that unites these these far right groups? Because you, you, you joined quite a few, including the obviously the, the religious aspect. Is there a kind of underpinning theme that you can see within all of them? I think that that I think fear is probably the ultimate thing which sort of goes across the board because the majority of the far right are really fearful of what they feel of losing their identity, their heritage, or their culture. And one of the things that we do today is we try and sort of you know look at what identity, heritage, and culture is, and then try and sort of reinforce in people actually that you know, many of us are different, but we have to be strong enough in what our identity is. And they're not fearful, uh, fearful of others because that's where the far right step in. They try and promote, you know, neighbour against neighbour, friend against friend on the colour of the skin. And, you know, then that's something that none of us have control over. And I think once you understand that it's fear that motivates, what we've got to try and do then is try and replace that fear with understanding and saying, yes, there are differences, but, you know, I don't have to be fearful of somebody because of a different colour or religion because there is no sort of, you know, grand plan to replace the white race or there's no plan to take over Britain. Whereas if you are stuck in that bubble of hate with the far right, that's the narrative you've got, you keep getting. So mm. you've got to try and break through that sort of bubble uh, to sort of try and give people a wider worldview. Because once you realise that and you come out of that bubble of hate, you literally look at the world in a, in a different uh, way completely. And do these groups ever talk about the, and you may have heard it in, in different ways described, but um, the great replacement theory or the white replacement theories or ideas connected to it during your time in yeah. the movement? 
I mean, the great replacement theory is simply a, a change in terminology. So people have always talked about immigration, um, invasion, use different terms, but the great replacement is a lot more um, sort of acceptable and it's something that people will be openly discussing. I mean, obviously, it was it was sort of um, used as a term through a couple of books which were produced um, sort of over the last 10 years. And the white nationalist movement has, has taken this on board as a term to promote. Um, but then, again, we always dig down and say, OK, who's replacing us? What are they replacing us with? You know, is it certain locations? But when you start to dig deep, you know what I mean? They, the far right don't have any answers at all. It's all very, very superficial. And, and, you know, once you challenge these people, they haven't got answers. So, you know, when somebody talks about what is it to be British and then somebody says, oh, well, you know, they have to be white. And, you know, so, OK, well, how many generations is that going back? You know what I mean? When does somebody, when is somebody OK to be white? Is it 10 years? Is it 100 years? Is it 500 years? And lots of people in the far right don't know what to say. And I think then that's the way then how you sort of sort of sow those seeds of doubts with individuals that, that they believe in and what's been promoted to them is simply false. Today, the Great Replacement Theory has become more malleable to the interests of its adherents. While it taps into global currents of anger against elites, believers of this theory tend to target different groups for some, the enemy is the Democratic Party. For others, it's the global financial elite. And of course, like any other conspiracy theory, there is always the familiar anti-Semitic trope that the enemy is somehow a global cabal of Jews. So how has the Great Replacement Theory been mass popularized and mass produced across the United States and Europe? We've asked academic Marco Fiola, an expert in the study of white extremist groups, to help us navigate this question. I'm joined now by Marco Fiola. Hi, Marco. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. The sun's uh, slowly starting to come out here in the UK, in London, so um, <laughs> I'm happy. Um, so... Can you start us off by telling, telling me a little bit about your educational background? Sure, sure. I, uh, you know, I was raised in the States and I went to college, a small liberal arts college in Virginia. Uh, and after that, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, where I got my PhD. And basically all along the way, I had studied, um, you know, critical theory in a variety of ways, which is what led me to my current topic, basically. <laughs> and I mean, what, because obviously, I mean, there are, Many, many topics in academia you can go down, um, certain ones probably less depressing than others. <laughs> what made you, um, you know, garner an interest to study these these kind of extremist groups? Um, you know, I mean, one of the guiding fundamental interests of a lot of critical theory, particularly the kind of early generations, is the question of fascism. Um, you know, how does fascism arise? What are the conditions that give rise to fascism under which it flourishes? And so, you know, that sort of led me, you know, about a decade ago to thinking very seriously about the rise and expansion of the militia movements in the United States, the kind of expansion of these militia groups across the Midwest, across the Western states, 
um, you know, kind of huge surges in membership. And now more and more of these militia groups were not just growing, but kind of taking on a variety of sort of paramilitary or kind of quasi-state oriented tasks. Things like patrolling the border, trying to you know, patrol borders to uh, scout out immigrants and immigrant crossings and things like this. And to make a long story short, as I was studying this, I realized, you know, I quickly realized that many of these militias were being driven by and were being motivated by, moved by this, you know, kind of new wave of immigration panic that was called the, uh, the Great Replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas before they'd largely been motivated a lot by sort of anti-state sentiments, there's this whole new ideology kind of rising in the scene, sweeping it like wildfire and really taking up a lot of their mental and intellectual energy. Mm-hmm. No, which is which is, um, I mean, bewildering in a lot of ways. Um, before we touch on the, the the great replacement theory, I wanted to um, uh, just delve a little bit, just very very briefly, into um, this, this these militia movements that you talked about, because obviously, I mean, if if my my history serves me correctly, you know, militias were very much a thing uh, in the states after you know the well um, the build up to and then during obviously the war of independence against the against the UK and um, you know the idea of the Minutemen and all this kind of I think you often see it as very um, almost romanticized in a, in a way, um, but I honestly didn't didn't know it was still a thing, let alone um, coming back in full force. <laughs> oh, it is it is a thing. It is indeed a thing. Um, I mean, as as you rightly point out, I mean they do have a very very long standing role in the American national imagination. The sort of deeply romanticized role. Um, you know, certainly when people talk about, you know, what they call the Great War of Independence, uh, you know, certainly militia organizations and Minutemen play a huge role, but um, they have, you know, played a huge role as well. And like I said, there's been a huge resurgence over the past few decades. A lot of it stemming from, you know, fears over a new global order, you know, coming to take over the nation or coming to take over, you know, coming to sap its national sovereignty. Um, so a lot of it having to do with anti-state sentiment, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of resurgence of interest during the recent COVID panics as well. Once again, fears of state overreach. But like I said, a lot of it also has to do with a desire to kind of supplant or make up for inadequacies of this, inadequacies of the state in patrolling its own borders. So we've also seen the rise of an entire wing of sort of anti-immigration uh, malicious as well. And and obviously you mentioned that the 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 great replacement or the great replacement theory is something that underpins a lot of these these groups. So so what is it and where did it come from? Um, so the great replacement um, is largely uh, you know it's a narrative, it's a conspiracy theory that tries to explain you know at essence one thing: population change, largely in the nations of Europe and North America. But at, at its heart, it wants to say what we're seeing is not just widespread population change in these nations, but rather a process of replacement, a process where white majorities are being replaced by non-whites. And furthermore, you know, at the heart of this narrative is a further insistence, and that is that this replacement, this process of replacement, is not happening by accident. This has been designed, deliberate, and intentional, you know, intentionally engineered by a broad set of elite policy decisions. So there's a lot going on, you know, a lot of sort of anxieties about immigration, a lot of anxiety, you know, kind of nativist fears, as well as, you know, a lot of anti-elite sentiment as well, you know, certainly channeling a lot of the kind of right populism sweeping the globe at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, no, which, which is interesting. And, and what would you say, um, well, what kind of fear would you say underpins this theory? And I ask because obviously there's a lot of, um, when I when I look at it from a kind of 
uh, I guess, European or UK perspective, there is this kind of anti-immigration sentiment. Um, I'd say more um, style towards anti-Islamic uh, sentiments. So there's, there's a lot of anti, uh, anti-Islamic rhetoric um, going on in the far right. Um, and that kind of underpins um, certain far right um, groups, I guess. Um would you say it's the same in the states, or or are there different kind of fears that underpin this 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 ideology over there? Um, I mean, the the kind of core fear that you often see, you know, popping up here, there, and everywhere, um, tends to trend, you know, more or less similar patterns, and that's basically a kind of overriding fear of displacement. You know, an overriding fear of displacement on the part of native whites, more specifically. And you'll see this cast out in various forms. You know, sometimes I'll, you know, sometimes I'll talk about our political displacement. Other times it's social displacement. Other times it's economic or cultural. But this is sort of the anxiety at its heart. This idea that we native-born whites, we who have a claim to these nations, you know, this is our birthright in some sense, are being displaced through these currents of heightened and enhanced immigration. Um, so a lot of times they'll begin with kind of anxieties and concerns over immigration, but all this is also underpinned by the other part of the great replacement fears, which is an overriding concern with an anxiety about declining birth rates and declining fertility rates in the nations of the West. So this is, you know, the other thing that kind of agitates them, mobilizes them, is this fear that, well, why is there all this immigration? Well, we need all this immigration because we've had such declining fertility rates. Simply to meet our economic goals, we have to bring in, you know, elites are bringing in, you know, more and more and more immigrants. And so this twofold uh, sort of threat of increased immigration and plummeting or declining birth, birth rates in these nations leads to this sort of overriding sense that all this is fated to happen. You know, there's, you know, it's basically unfolding this replacement process and really deep-rooted political tendencies are bringing this about. This is why, you know, they'll often cite this, um, this kind of famous sentence, you know, to all say, which is basically demography is destiny. You know, basically, we are being displaced almost, you know, almost through destiny because the demographic currents, the demographic tides just leading to these conclusions. So, you know, there's this sort of overriding sense of panic about it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and you can you can see it in the in, in the, the way that, you know, far right groups have um, have acted and you can see in certain events that have come up, you know, from from Capitol Hill to, um, to the Unite the Right marches and so forth um is there a kernel of truth in this theory and what i mean by that is that you you look at certain conspiracy theories and some you know kind of make it in the in the kind of you know dark corners of the internet and never really go beyond that and some obviously um hit kind of global notoriety much much like this one and the ones that that tend to seem to have at least a couple of kernels that the conspiracy theory believers can kind of point to which is um actively true um and then they kind of build and mount this entire fabricated kind of ideology um arguably around that one little uh bit of truth um and that truth could potentially be manipulated misguided but you know there, there's something there that they can kind of point to as being um factually accurate does that exist with with the great replacement theory yeah, yeah. I mean, like most conspiracy theories, it you know begins with sort of you know a kernel of truth. It begins with you know an easily observed phenomenon in our world, and that is you know the basic fact of population change. You know, there's a ton of social science about this, and all sorts of sensor data that would point to the fact that there is population change, shifting demographics in nation after nation. Uh, for example, in the U.S., um, you know this the U.S. census 
recently came out with a report saying that by the year 2045, there, you know, it would be a, a majority non-white nation. And so they begin, you know, with this sort of kernel of truth or this observation about the world, which is perfectly accurate. Uh, you know, what, what they then spin into, however, is this sort of conspiratorial fantasy that all of these changes that we see unfolding are the result of design, right? There's an intention behind it. There's an agency behind it. Mm -hmm. It's elites bringing this about for their own gain in some sense. You know, there's sort of a master plan. And the master plan is ultimately to displace native born whites. Um, and I'll say, you know, and so for many of them, you know, when, when they begin to kind of ramp up this sort of conspiratorial angle of it, many of them will even point to what they think is a smoking gun. You know, there's this famous, you know, when pressed on this, I'll say, ah, oh, we've got proof behind this. There's this famous uh, UN report that came out in about um, 2000 about replacement migration. And basically the report came out and it basically tried to track population declines or diminished fertility rates in a number of major industrial nations, you know, France, Germany, UK, US, Italy, South Korea, so on and so forth. And basically, you know, the, the UN report basically says that, yes, we're seeing kind of declining fertility rates, you know, maybe one way that these nations could find to, to meet their, their labor needs in the future would be through replacement migration. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people that believe in that great replacement then fasten upon this, they seize upon this and they say, aha, right here, here it is, it's proof. Here's the smoking gun. The UN even said it themselves that this is the master plan. When in fact, of course, they said nothing of the sort. But, you know, these are the sorts of documents that they'll fasten on as evidence, you know, fasten upon as evidence that, you know, at one moment they saw behind the curtain to see proof that it is engineered, it is conscious, it is a strategy. Do you feel like there's a, an, uh, I guess I, I might know the answer to this already, but do you feel like there's a link between the Great Replacement Theory and reproductive rights groups and women's rights groups? Obviously, we're talking about, you know, the, the replacement of the, the white race, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say, I mean, there's absolutely a wide range of sort of um, intersections between, you know, people who've rallied under the Great Replacement Banner and, you know, movements for and debates over reproductive rights, particularly in the United States. Mm -hmm. Because you might remember, I mean, at the heart of the Great Replacement, you know, this sort of narrative, these sorts of concerns, is the belief that native-born whites are not reproducing enough. You know, this is a phrase that's often called, you know, the demographic winter that we're entering into. You know, these nations just are not reproducing at what's called replacement levels to keep their population levels up. Therefore, we need to bring in, you know, these new waves of immigration leading to, you know, the replacement of whites as demographic majorities in their countries. Mm -hmm. And so for, you know, a lot of people who follow the Great Replacement or who endorse it or who believe in it, you know, for them, at least one of the great fronts that they're trying to fight on is you know, this one insistence. Therefore, if we want to turn the tides, well, there's a lot of things that I can talk about, you know, to get us into even more dangerous territory. But at least one of the things that, that they want to say that we must do is increase reproduction. That is one of the fronts on which the battle must be fought. So for, you know, certainly in white nationalist camps for a very long time, there's been this sort of huge emphasis on big families. You know, the path to a better nation, the path to a white nation is through big families. And we, there's this entire mythology surrounding the families. There's this kind of classic phrase, this famous phrase from the notorious white supremacist, Davis, David Lane, for instance, that basically says, the path to the nation, you know, goes through the wombs of its women. That basically only through reproduction can we whites take the nation back. So there's that, you know, basically we have to increase and enhance reproduction and increase reproductive rates as an insistence. But on the other hand, you know, the other, the other front, you know, for these people that are very concerned about reproduction rates, 
is the other insistence that maybe one way of increasing white reproductive rates is by limiting or curtailing access to you know, um, technologies of reproductive autonomy, you know, basically cutting down on abortion rights. So the recent news you know, coming out about the, you know, the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and legal access to, to abortion or legal rights to abortion has been met with great enthusiasm by many. Because the idea of being, I mean, and they'll often call you know, uh, abortion rights things like the autogenocide of the white race. Uh, you know, things like, and uh, yes, I mean, they've got all these lurid phrases for this, but this is how they'll describe it. So many of them, you know, cheered this movement with great enthusiasm that, you know, basically if we can get rid of abortion, then, you know, reproductive rates will shoot up and we'll be well on our way, you know, toward a more fertile nation. Which is, I mean, it's, it's terrifying because obviously we've, we've, you know, come a long way in, in many, many different, different um, ways, obviously. Um, many would argue that there's, there's a lot still to be done in terms of uh, working on equity, equality, and, and all those kind of things. But um, when you're starting to see things getting rolled back in in this way in the states, it's 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 quite um, it's quite terrifying when you when you when you see it. Um, yeah, yeah. And when you and when you when you see pictures of when you go to anti-abortion events, and you'll you'll see you know there's a lot of actual white nationalist organizations there marching alongside them. I mean, one of the one of the ones that's recently become notorious recently called the Patriot Front, Patriot Front. And, you know, they've been going to all of these anti-abortion events, carrying a banner that simply reads, strong families make strong nations, which of course is just, you know, white nationalist code for, <laughs> um, you know, white babies make white families make white nations. Yeah. But yeah, so there's there's been a kind of solid, steady presence at these events. It's not just, say, ideological support for the anti-abortion movement. Fears over declining fertility rates are central to the Great Replacement Theory. In his manifesto posted online, the Buffalo Shooter makes explicit reference to a white genocide caused by low fertility rates of white populations and the high fertility rates of non-whites. While the UN report published in 2000 did indeed make reference to declining fertility rates, it was by no means suggesting that non-whites were displacing white populations as part of some elite master plan. But of course, conspiracy theorists have run with this kernel of truth in order to justify and spread the rhetoric of white supremacy and violence. And with this um, theory, was there a kind of turning point um, that pushed this theory into the mainstream like was it the un report that kind of pushed it out there and kind of made it um widespread as it is now or was it kind of a gradual burn and there was no kind of one big kind of shift um i mean i'm not certain there was any one kind of you know point of eruption or any one turning point and really the phrase you know as i said a moment ago kind of hits extremist circles with the publication of camus book you know camus mm -hmm. the, the french writer uh, he puts it out in 2011, and after that, you know, the phrase comes to be popularized. It puts a label on this sort of current that's been kind of drifting around extremist circles for some time. And I mean, labels are powerful, right? I mean, they allow complex ideas to be shared easily, quickly. They serve as a shorthand. So at that point, it begins to circulate around a lot of the extremist chat rooms that you'll see out there and a lot of extremist message boards. And it's taken up by the kind of dedicated far-right sites. You know, so for here in the U.S., it would be, you know, particularly the far-right sites concerned with a kind of xenophobic agenda, places like 
countercurrents, places like Vidair, Stormfront, and the like. So that's where, you know, kind of really begins to get a lot of traction. It begins to get a lot of popularity. I mean, to get to the moment where it really hits the mainstream, though, um, I mean, it's really, at least in the United States, it's really hit the mainstream. You know, it's been popularized and mainstreamed, uh, perhaps most vocally, um, by, you know, one of the most, one of the foremost media figures in the, the nation, Tucker Carlson. You know, perhaps the most watched figure on Fox News, which is often touted as the most watched uh, television station in the nation. Uh, and he has really done more to popularize and mainstream this turn more than anybody else. You know, he's kind of floated it out there several times on his show, uh, presented it as if it's, you know, it's not just a theory. It's happening. We know it's happening no matter what the, the mainstream media tells us. So he's sort of been banging this drum for a while and making it, you know, acceptable to talk about, you know, in, in you know, among circles of people who wouldn't normally view themselves as white nationalists or white supremacists. And then it's not just him. I mean, it's a number of other figures on Fox News who, who now routinely, you know, refer to this, not just as a theory or belief, but as an accomplished fact. And then from that point, you know, now that he, you know, has kind of mainstreamed it to such a degree, it's also been kind of popularized and discussed by a, a broad variety of, of elected officials, for instance. You know, in the United States, we've uh, uh, quite a few uh, elected officials, you know, from the Republican Party discussing it once again, as if this is, we all know it's happening, as if it's an accomplished fact. We saw it also discussed you know, um, in unvarnished terms in the recent French presidential elections. So you've got elected officials, you know, discussing this, mainstreaming it, legitimating it, and putting it out there on the most public of stages possible. Though, of course, as I, as I suggested, I mean, a lot of the label does track on the kind of much longer standing anxieties about immigration, demographic panics that, you know, certainly have existed in the United States, to be sure, for, you know, centuries. So it's a, it's a new way of putting a label on kind of classic xenophobic fears. What's new about it, though, isn't just the idea that, you know, immigrants are coming in or that they might change the population or that whites, native born whites might be displaced. What's new about it is what I would describe as the kind of uniquely toxic and dangerous idea that not just this is happening, but that it is intentional, mm -hmm. that it is designed, that there's a plan behind it to the benefit of some other group. Yeah. And it's, and it's that... It's, it's it's the idea of the motive that there is a that there is a that there is a logic um and that someone or something or a group of people are are, are designing this which of course as 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 we know is is completely false um but that kind of idea um can really so so hate as we've seen um but can also can can open people up to to being manipulated or or, or to to um you know acting in a certain way and it's interesting you mentioned obviously um you know, uh, organizations like, you know, Fox News and, and various other media outlets. Um, because is there a concern um, when uh, what maybe we can loosely call journalists uh, on what we see as mainstream uh, media outlets are talking about these things and legitimizing them? There is a difference between that kind of legacy journalism and legacy news outlets that talk about these things and then kind of the bizarre and kind of you know fringe news website on on the internet do you feel like there's a there's almost like a, a real um failure of responsibility for certain um legacy outlets to to do their due diligence and not talk about these things because you you give them more weight or do you feel like with the internet it doesn't really matter as much yeah yeah it's it's an it's an interesting question i mean um, 
you know, two things I'd say. I mean, you know, one of the kind of unique dangers of this, as I was suggesting before, is that, you know, when it is popularized by these sorts of legacy outlets, you know, it makes it, you know, it makes many people feel as though it's safe to sort of endorse and espouse and reproduce these positions. Whereas before, you know, if these were being put out on some sort of uh, recognized far-right outlet, you know, some sort of, you know, race panic outlet, you know, that we see on the internet, uh, you know, many people would not feel so emboldened uh, to, you know, to speak about these ideas, to reproduce them, to uh, discuss them joyfully and confidently in public. Whereas, you know, when they come out through these legacy outlets, I mean, this does give them the air of legitimacy. It's not coming, you know, in their minds from a fringe outlet, right? It's coming from one of the established, in fact, the largest media outlet in the United States, which, you know, lends a lot of legitimacy and a lot of sort of, uh, you know, kind of public purchase mm -hmm. to these sorts of ideas, this sort of discourse, this sort of debate. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that you ask about responsibility because this is always the debate that comes up in the States, you know, whenever Tucker Carlson goes out, you know, kind of distributes these ideas on one of his shows, there's always some sort of firestorm the next day, you know, um, you know, some sort of outlet will come and say, all right, now is the point when Fox News is going to crack down on them. There will be, you know, a day or two of responses. The Anti-Defamation League will, will, you know, lodge some sort of protest or, uh, or a complaint. And there, you know, there's a lot of questions. All right, will this be the point at which they crack down on him? At which point they never do. You know, it's clear that, um, you know, that the powers that be at, at Fox News have not been sufficiently disturbed by this to try to limit, uh, you know, what he's talking about, how he's talking about it, or try to limit the distribution of this, uh, of this narrative. According to a report that was recently published by the Associate Press, one in three Americans believe that demographic changes are being orchestrated by a group of elites. That's not to say that one in three Americans are jumping on 4chan and becoming radicalized. It's much more worrisome than that. Now, many of them are discovering sanitized and sanded down versions of the Great Replacement Theory on conservative news platforms and from the mouths of elected Republican officials. I'll just say more broadly, I mean, and this is, you know, this is kind of the, the trend that we see from the Great Replacement, why it tends to kind of lend itself so immediately to kind of extremist positions, right? Which is, uh, I mean, think about the story it's telling you, you know, think about the story that's telling to native whites that basically, you know, that there's this vast conspiracy targeting you, you know, to disenfranchise you and your kind, an entire system trying to eliminate you and your form of life and your culture. You know, they're trying to take it from you. They're cheating you. I mean, we get all these narratives, which is why we've seen, um, you know, a number of explicit acts of extremism. You know, so if you, if you even step down from you know, the sort of big discourse of race war, I mean, we've seen some explicit acts of quite clearly motivated racial violence followed directly from this discourse of the Great Replacement. You know, and I mean, the classic case is in 2019, the March of 2019 in New Zealand, uh, you know, Christchurch. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a, you know, a shooter entered two mosques in Christchurch um, with a weapon and murdered 51 Muslims at their place of worship. And, you know, as they investigated this, you know, basically he disclosed to the authorities that he had a manifesto distributed online to explain his actions. And when they went and found the manifesto, it was simply entitled The Great Replacement. And, you know, that was simply the title. And as you go through it, I mean, it's page after page after page talking about all the central tenets all the central themes of Great Replacement Thought. The very first lines of the piece of the manifesto are in fact, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, repeated three times. So you, you've seen this sort of, you know, uh, 
sort of explode or erupt in kind of clearly motivated cases of ethnic violence as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And then in August of that year, you know, so it wasn't just that case. In August of that year, we saw a similar case in the United States, where in El Paso, Texas, another, you know, white extremist stormed a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, um, and killed 23 shoppers there. Um, and once again, when arrested, he told the authorities that he had a manifesto out there. And when they found it, it was once again filled with all sorts of references to great replacement theory and, you know, explicit claims that, you know, the reason why he was doing this was basically to awaken the nation to the war that's been going on before our very eyes. Basically to, yeah, to enlighten the nation and to try to light the spark of a potential race war where brave, you know, white men and women would rise up to take back their nation. And many people, when I talk to about this, they think it's, you know, some sort of pie in the sky ideal, you know, just some sort of fantasy. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of actual, you know, sort of proposals unfolding in the United States. I mean, there's been a lot of thought put into this, you know, there's actual planned out homelands where they've kind of sketched out areas of the United States, tried to dedicate them to different visions. You know, one in the Ozarks, they just called Ozarkia. <laughs> one in New England called New Albion. One in the Pacific Northwest, you know, they call Cascadia. Um, so there's one, I believe, down in Florida, they want to call Gulflandia. Uh, so there's a lot of specific proposals for this sort of thing out there in the literature. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, I mean, you know, it's and it's and it's so ludicrous that sometimes you forget that you know people people have died for this for for this belief or because of this belief. However you wanna, however you wanna. Um, you want to spin it, right? But talking about the, the the great replacement theory and the kind of specific demographics that it targets, and when I say targets, I mean the people that kind of respond to it positively. Because the kind of the stereotype, I guess, is, um, you know, white working class people. But I'm guessing that's not the case, or maybe it is still. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of research, and a lot of this research is ongoing, trying to figure mm -hmm. out you know, to whom does this appeal most broadly? Um, you know, and so for example, there's this fascinating data that recently came out, um, you know, in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, you know, you know, on, uh, when all these white nationalists, well, and a variety of sort of disaffected Republicans stormed the Capitol to try to halt the proceedings, you know, surrounding the election of Joe Biden. Uh, but the point being, you know, they did these studies, you know, try to figure out, you know, what motivated these people, what mobilized these people. And what they discovered is that they came from a, a huge variety of backgrounds, a huge variety of areas, a huge variety of class positions. But the one thing that did tend to unite them overall, you know, the, these people who stormed the Capitol in this sort of violent insurrectionary moment, was a widespread and prevailing belief in the Great Replacement. The dangers of extremist rhetoric is that they often flourish and bloom into echo chambers of like-minded individuals. It's a potent and deadly poison, and one that often feels like it has no cure. What pushed you to eventually leave? Was there a specific event or moment, or was it like a gradual grinding away of, of those beliefs? I think if I look at it, honestly, it was definitely over a three-year period where I really decided to sort of say, you know, am I in the right place, and am I doing the right thing? Um, the first sort of chink in my arm is when my wife at the time gave me an ultimatum. She was sick of the violence, the attacks on the home. She hated my politics and always felt that she was going to you know, change the way I believed. Um, but, you know, when the house is being attacked in the car and she simply gave me an ultimatum and said it's either combat 18 or her. 
and I simply walked away from the marriage because I was so dedicated and had been groomed to believe that the movement is above everything. Um, it was mm. just another casualty of war and we just walked away. Um, and then I went to a friend's house. He put me up for the next six months. And then during that time then, it was about, I got more active, but it, there was always something at the back of my mind thinking, oh, you know, I've wasted my life. I've threw away a marriage. You know, what, what am I doing? But then one uh, one event led to me to simply walk away. And it was when a, a gentleman was getting racially abused in Birmingham City Centre. And he was going to be attacked by about 15 CIT members. Um, and when I walked into this sort of bedlam, um, I realised what was going to happen. And I either had to decide to walk away uh, because I wasn't going to get involved in this racial attack or do something about it. And, and I simply decided in like a you know, spur of the moment, I sort of jumped in the middle and said to get to this guy who was, you know, obviously a black gentleman, you've got to get through me. But I honestly believed that I was like the regional organiser at the time, that, that that sort of held the crowd back. They weren't really sure what to do at that time. Um, and I think the fact that I heard his wife and his children as well crying in a nearby bus stop, uh, I think literally broke me, if I'm honest. Um, and I just thought, right, we've got to do something. And luckily, two people who were close to me jumped in as well and said, you know, Nigel's right, the enemy is the state, not this guy here. And quickly, we just got the guy and the family, physically sort of rammed him into a black cab, gave some money to the taxi driver and just said, get him out of here. But I remember walking away then and not going with the rest of the crowd. And they were going, oh, come on, Nigel, don't worry about it. And I just walked away and says, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. But I knew then that that was the time I'm going to walk away. Um, but then it took me sort of three years. So sort of, how do I then leave and how do you walk away? Because like you said, it's literally a gang environment. Walking away from something like combat eating isn't easy. So how did those people around you react when you finally stepped away? Um, I did it really anonymously. I literally sort of put everything, um, you know, all the CDs, the T-shirts, you know, everything we had, phones, um, into a lock-up garage, which we used to share, uh, literally contacted them and says, I'm leaving, I'm out, and then sort of destroyed, you know, back in the old, the old days, we had some really big mobile phones, <laughs> just destroyed it, and then got on a train to London and then lived there for a couple of years. Um, I'd saved over the time some money to do that and then literally had to start again. And, you know, that was absolutely terrifying. But now we've got groups like Exit, we've got Prevent, mm -hmm. who are there to help people um, to obviously walk away from hate, but do with support. But in my day, there was literally nothing. That's mad. And now that you'd walked away, but obviously had this 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 history, um, how did your interactions with um, people from other ethnic groups change now that you were out of it, now that you were free from that from that movement? I mean, at the beginning, I was really paranoid because obviously you've got all this baggage of, of still having this far ideology, but doing it because you didn't like the violence. Um, so over time, I tried to break down those barriers. Um, you know, I lived um, in a flat which was owned by an Asian gentleman, and he literally looked after me while I was working. All the you know hours got sent were to bring him money. Um, he would you know sit me down and you know. Uh, we'd sit on the carpet, we'd have Asian food, we'd talk about religion, politics, everything like that. And he literally looked after me while I was in London. And he was always saying, Nigel, you don't eat properly, come in, have this, do this. 
And, you know, being polite, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever you need to do, it's all good because you don't upset the landlord, obviously. Um, but it was a great education process. And I think it just reinforced, you know, one of the best things I've ever done was walk away. Um, but over time then, you know, going to places like Soho and Brixton, it literally just lifted the lid on all that sort of hate and rhetoric that I've been, you know, engrossed in and sort of took on board as being real. It just literally proved to be all false. Uh, and, you know, and now I don't look at somebody as a label, you know, somebody as Asian or black or whatever. I look at the individual as a, you know, as a human individual person. And then I look at their actions and what they say, you know, the rest of it is just sort of all out of casings. And, you know, I don't like to get trying tied up in identity anymore. That's mm-hmm. something I've myself as an individual choice I've tended to come away from. Yeah, no, which which makes sense, and it's interesting you say that because it's almost like the idea of killing hate with kindness. That um, you know, because that person kind of looked at you and gave you a hand and kind of you know welcomed you in, despite uh, obviously I'm, I'm guessing he didn't know. Um, but I'm sure in your mind, you know, thinking back on all the things that you that you did to, to people like him at the time, um, seeing that must have felt a bit a bit strange. Yeah, it was really strange, but we've always said, you know, things like hope, kindness, love, they will always destroy hate because they're obviously a lot more powerful. And I think, you know, people who get involved in the far right, and I do want to reinforce it, not all of them are bad. They go for many reasons. They get involved. Um, You know, we talk to young girls who join the far right for protection. Other people have bereavement issues. Some people have addiction issues. And they turn to the far right because the far right are experts in recruiting individuals with a need. But I think what we've got to do as a society is literally put those buffers in place so people stay within the reams of society and get the support they need so they don't fall foul to extremists who promote a really sort of, you know, strong and simple message. But the reality is you're just going down an abyss which is only going to harm your life long term. I mean, of course, and and you know, there is something to be said that the people that get radicalized are often, um, although hard to see it this way, um, are often victims themselves um, of grooming or, or or manipulation or, or a variety of of different of different things. And um, especially if you take that gang mentality and you run with it, once you're in it, it's as you say, incredibly hard and arguably dangerous to 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 get out afterwards. I mean, you mentioned there were attacks on the home. Um, where about? I mean, could you could you um, talk a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, there was there was numerous attacks on the homes. You know, the way they found my address, I actually got involved in an altercation in Birmingham, and we were always told at the very beginning to be card carrying members of the British movement or the National Front, and you should be proud of it. But obviously, living in Birmingham, you know, there was an altercation with with a different group of people from a different ethnicity. Um, you know, yeah, they managed to get my coat, my coat ripped open, out fell my wallet. And because we were outnumbered so much, we literally had to do a runner. Um, we did that, but then the fact that the membership card then had my phone number, my address, literally opened the door then to people knowing who I was, my identity, my house. And it literally just snowballed from there. You know, we, it, living in Birmingham, there was a lot of people, whether it was anti-racist, you know, uh, people from an extreme left-wing perspective, they very much thought that violence would sort of solve and reduce far-right extremism, which it doesn't. It just makes things worse. And I think once that that started, you know, the attacks on the car, the house, 
um, late calls late at night. And I think one of the worst things that really stuck in my mind, um, I had a call obviously from an anti-racist when I lived back home with my parents. And uh, the gentleman basically threatened to rape my mom. Now he said, this is what you deserve for your involvement. And, you know, I was so angry at that time. I was very much, well, you know where I live. You've got my phone number. You know what I mean? I'll leave the door open because I was so angry and sort of, you know, um, sort of lost for words at what this gent had said. Um, and, you know, my mum was a trade unionist, a socialist, anti-racist. And I thought, how dare they say this? And I have no idea who also my parent was. Um, and obviously, you know, the house was attacked and, and, you know, nobody ever came to sort of do anything like that. But that one phone call literally made me stay in the movement and hate socialism for so long, um, you know, for probably 10 years, just because of that one call. Because I felt that everybody who was a, a left-wing activist and anti-racist felt the same, which is obviously mad. But then the far right, when they found out about it, they just built on the anger to, to sort of me to want to uh, others who had that same political persuasion. Yeah. Um, and when talking about obviously your work um, with Exit Hate UK now, um, when someone has been radicalised in 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 very much the way that obviously you you have you were in the past, uh, what are some of the ways you you and your organisation help them break out of that belief system? I mean, first of all, we always make sure we find out, you know, what's the trigger? How did you initially get involved in it? Because once we know the trigger, we can look to sort of challenge that. Um, then we'll then try and find out what are the main issues for the individual today, you know, whether it's um, politicians, um, terrorism, what are, what are the main issues that they're worried about? We'll then try and find out, do they have any answers? Because then we'll find out whether they're angry or whether they are political activists. And then what we try and do then is take them on a journey. We'll then try and get them to look at the reality of far-right extremism. You know, if you're going to repatriate everybody, you know, who is non-white, how are you going to do that? How are you then are going to be able to sort of, you know, split up mixed heritage um, sort of couples where maybe, you know, mum's white, dad's a different ethnicity, and you've got, you know, a mixed heritage child? Who's going to put that individual with their child onto a plane or a boat? And then what are you then going to do with the partner? And these are really challenging conversations, which we then really hit home and say, how do you do this? And most far activists, you know, have never really thought about the practicalities of what they're going to do. I don't know, you know, then we challenge them, would you do this? Is something that you can do? And, you know, it really breaks down their sort of viewpoints to a really human level. And, you know, the vast majority are saying, well, I couldn't do that. But I'm saying you're supporting an ideology which you do. And then once you get down to that, we then start to look at what does the individual want for their own personal lives? You know, has been involved in the far right been positive or negative? And every single person we've ever spoken to has always said it's been a negative experience. So then we talk about what do they want to do in the future? Do mm. they want to carry on and being involved and doing something which doesn't go anywhere? Or do they want to get a better job, better home, you know, walk away from height because it's not good for their mental health? And, you know, when we get people to that stage is then when they go, you know what, I've had enough. How do I leave? And then that then, depending on the group that they're involved in, depends on what journey we take them. In the frenzy of the digital age, anger and extremism are no longer hidden in the dark corners of the Internet. 
There is tremendous mainstreaming of extremist rhetoric being peddled out in the open, not only by nobodies like the Buffalo Shooter, but by media personalities and politicians. I was wondering, does the obviously advent of the internet, social media, both open and closed platforms, do they um, have a have a process in this in this radicalization? Like, has it has it sped the the, the growth of this belief in the in the, the great replacement theory up? As it as it has a negative impact, or is it not quite as as clear cut? Um, I mean, a lot of people would say that, you know, extremism, you know, more broadly tends to be fomented and driven by a lot of, you know, the decisions behind social media platforms, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, one of the things that we've seen most clearly with social media platforms, and, and certainly just, just our age, you know, our, our internet mediated age, is the rise of kind of content, content algorithms, right? Mm. Uh, and this idea is that, you know, platform after platform, what do they want more than anything else, but to keep you there, right? They want to keep you there, reading, engaging, clicking, sharing, liking, and all these sorts of things. And the way to keep people on these platforms is to try to figure out ways to deliver to you content that they think you like. And so, you know, we've seen the rise of these content algorithms that basically try to determine what you like and feed you more and more and more and more and more of it. Um, and so, you know, in the world of extremism, you know, many people would say that, you know, this is one of the perfect recipes for extremism in our world. Because basically once these platforms determine that, you know, you clicked on a great replacement article or you cl clicked on some sort of xenophobia article, or you've been searching a lot of stuff about declining white population rates or whites losing their jobs or something like this, what are they gonna do but start feeding you more and more and more and more of that content, right? Leading to, you know, what many scholars of social media and of, you know, internet news more broadly have described this kind of an increasingly bubbled or increasingly siloed world, right? And we have these platforms that are designed to do one thing, provide for you more and more of that content that they think you like that they think drives you and motivates you. So we've seen, you know, maybe people would say, I mean, many of the explosions in extremism that we've seen come as a direct result from, you know, these sorts of interventions in the world of social media. Mm -hmm. They're basically leading people down this path with more and more and more content, all designed to confirm the same worldview or the same set of concerns, suspicions, grievances, or angers that led you there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, many people would say that, yeah, I mean, if this is basically how extremism has been driven in large part on the internet by these social, you know, by these decisions, by social media platforms, certainly great replacement would be no different. You know, the spread of this ideology would be spread the same way. You know, you start searching for, you know, all sorts of concerns over immigration, birth rates and the like, of course, it's going to start feeding you information about this. Of course, it's just the, it's the economic argument in the same way that legacy media pushes out uh, content. Uh, that's uh, that's clickbaity, right? Because uh, you know the more they show you stuff you like, the more likely you are to click on it. Um, and you know that that kind of elevates that concern when you know that creates obviously an echo chamber. But then going further, you start to find sort of closed social media platforms like Telegram, Discord, and WhatsApp, where you know. With open ones, at least there is the possibility that a friend will see what you're sharing or whatever and engage in a debate or a conversation. Whereas closed platforms, nobody necessarily will know you're in them. You know, you can be completely 100% anonymous in those chat rooms and you could be radicalizing yourself and others and nobody would really know. Um, right. So you can see how these things can start to, you know, flourish or, or maybe not flourish, but embed themselves more and more into our, in, into our consciousness, I guess. So in your kind of academic journey, is there a, a process of de-radicalization that you've seen work? Or what, what can we do to 
to to to counter these these really toxic narratives. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say two things. I mean, one, I would certainly agree. And on a very that. simple question, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I'll say two things. I mean, one, I you know I certainly share your concern about you know these sorts of closed platforms, right? Mm-hmm. What many people would describe as kind of a radicalization of these tendencies toward information bubbles. Mm-hmm. It's one thing you know to get them on Facebook or Instagram or what have you, but there's always the possibility of one of your friends, as you rightly point out, kind of intervening, interjecting, and the like, and complicating. Whereas on these closed platforms, and you really are in the self-chosen bubble as well, you know, further eliminating the possibility that you will receive countervailing positions, views, insights, and the like. And I've been, you know, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time on a number of these platforms and a number of these chat forums. And I can say that these are profoundly siloed worlds, yeah. you know, where, you know, they all agree on the basics and it is this echo chamber of endlessly, you know, kind of recited and repeated um, and often virulent talking points that are never, you know, questioned, never challenged or the like. But to get to you, yes, but to get to your second question, you know, the process of uh, de-radicalization, uh, it's tricky, right? I mean, especially in this age. And we've seen and we've certainly read all sorts of success stories about de-radicalization. And there's these sorts of famous books that come out about people who've gone through their journey of de-radicalization, right? And what is it? Rising in a Hatred, I think, is one of the big ones. Mm. I remember reading quite a bit ago. And, you know, so there's these kind of famous success stories. And certainly there's a lot of... Um, literature out there, you know, a lot of studies about de-radicalization programs, you know, people have tried to enact and people have tried to forge in order to bring people back from these radicalized worlds. And and certainly in the United States, I mean, there's a lot of concern, a lot of interest in these programs, particularly with regard to QAnon, oddly enough. You know, many people say, you know, this sort of closed, paranoia, conspiratorial world of QAnon, you know, now families after families realizing they've lost family members are now very interested in these sorts of platforms and programs of de-radicalization has been a huge interest in them. Um, as for their efficacy, um, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of competing stories as to just how efficacious they are because, you know, once again, because, uh, you know, a lot of these, there's a lot of these programs out there, you know, you'll get people who want to lead these groups, or at least, you know, there'll be, you know, there'll be interventions from their friends or family members say, you need to see someone to talk about this, about, you know, these sorts of ideologies you've been imbibing and the like. And the thing is, you know, there's, there's been a lot of accounts that, uh, you know, basically, even when people go through some of these programs, or people begin the process of radical, de-radicalization, I mean, the lure of social media is always out there, right? And the lure of all this content on the internet is always out there. So well, yeah, I mean, you have the world in your pocket, right? If you're right, carrying around right, a yeah. smartphone, you've got all that. Right, right, right. And yeah, it's, it's right there on your phone. And so, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of cases that I've certainly read of where people, you know, have been, you know, kind of encouraged on this path of de-radicalization, you know, have even made their way partly down there. And yet there's that phone in your pocket and they find themselves backsliding, going back to the same sites. And the thing is, you don't even have to go to the external sites, right? I mean, you could just go to Twitter. You could just go to Facebook. What are viewed as the, the legit sites? And that content is all still there for you to get, you know, to slide right back into. So, I, I, you know, I'd say for de-radicalization, it's, you know, it's ambivalent. I mean, there are, there are these programs, there are success stories, and yet just given you know, the, the, the world of media at the moment, you know, these internet platforms, um, and certainly the shape of social media at this point in time, um, these people are still being surrounded sort of endlessly by the possibility of slipping back into that world. It's, it's, you know, kind of uniquely toxic. Yeah, no, definitely. And it almost sounds like the, um, the kind of real solution, I guess, if this, if this could be classed as a solution is, is prevention being almost better than cure in the sense that once you're, once you're in that world, it's incredibly hard to get you out. Therefore, it's easier and simpler for us to all be more critical um, thinkers in that kind of um, 
you know, when we're on, when we're in, you know, the social media world, when we're, when we're on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or whatever, um, to be more critical and analyzing information. Um, but of course, to have those skills, you you kind of need to be taught in in schools, I guess. Right, right. I mean, which would be a great place to start. The online flow of racist ideology is constantly watering the seeds of hate. Internet-fueled racist creed is increasingly making its way off the internet and into the hands of individuals, pointing the barrel of a gun at those they view as the enemy. No one is born into this world filled with hate towards a specific race, religion, or gender. It is something that is learned, but equally something that can be prevented. Building media literacy at an early age ensures that individuals have the emotional resilience necessary before these dangerous narratives sink in. Perhaps in this way, we can prevent the next Christchurch, Charleston, or Buffalo tragedy from occurring. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.